God's Word. Are you ready to uh, hear from the Lord through His Word this morning? All right. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Be reading from Matthew 7 here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 7. And this is the fourth installment on our series that we began on unforgiveness. I had been reading the book Total Forgiveness. If you've never read the book by R.T. Kendall entitled Total Forgiveness, it's one of those books you really need on your shelf. It's going to be a book that you'll pick up and you'll flip through and you will read probably the rest of your life because you just can't get through life without offenses and wounds and hurts and uh, misunderstandings. And you need to understand what it means to you to forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, we in turn are to go and to be forgiving to other people. And I just started this whole series, and I have no way to go back and recap all of this. I just, you know, I understand the internet is like the wild, wild west of technology. You can get yourself in a whole lot of trouble on the internet. But at the same time, you can get into a whole lot of blessing as well, if you use it well. And um, you can go to the internet and you can go to LegacyCathedral.org and hit the media link and follow all the directions and get to iTunes and absolutely free. I, I shouldn't be saying this because I'll lose all the CD money now. You'll just give a little extra right in the offering is what you'll do. But you can get that absolutely free, all of the previous lessons, and you can catch up if you want, and you need to hear it all in order to get the full picture on what it means to be forgiving, forgiving. And uh, I can't review it this morning, but we talked about why you should forgive. If you've been wrong, why should you even have to forgive? What's the motivation behind it? And we talked about why you should forgive. We talked about how do you know you've truly forgiven? A lot of times, you know, people will vote. You know, people will say to us, uh, you know, you need to forgive. And we'll go, I've forgiven him. I, I really have. I've forgiven him. Well, how do you know that you've really forgiven somebody? And we talked about the life of Joseph and how you can begin to measure that rightly. Um, we talked last week about bitterness. If you were here last week, we mentioned bitterness and about how bitterness will cause you to lose your inheritance. And I don't know about you, but an inheritance from the Lord's a good thing. And I don't want to lose that inheritance. And so we, we talked about that through the story of Esau. And so all of this comes to us this morning, and this will be our last installment. I have some things that I want to share next Sunday uh, in the area of vision. Now, the Holy, Holy Spirit's been talking to me about some exciting things, I think. They've been challenging and exciting things, and so next week I feel like I have a, an exciting, challenging word for everyone. But I want to make sure that we can get into the challenging, exciting things of God because we're not going anywhere unless we get this forgiveness thing down. Do you, under, do you understand if there is bitterness? Th this is not only in the scripture. I mean, and that, that's the final say. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30 that we will grieve the Holy Spirit if bitterness is allowed to exist. We learned last week that if we do not enter into forgiveness, that we will cut off and shut down uh, the doors of heaven in order to receive an inheritance. So if we don't get forgiveness into our system, we're not going anywhere. I can, I can declare to you the mysteries of God and I can declare to you the promises of God. And we can prophesy over each other incredible things and none of it will happen. Unless you get forgiveness into your system. Are you with me? 
I mean, this is 101. And, and, and so we've talked about how, how just absolute astronomical percentages of people walk around in bitterness. So next week when we talk about the challenge and the promise and the vision and what God has before us, understand that it's all, all premised on whether we get this into our system today. Forgiveness. Because unforgiveness will do more to damage you than the person who perpetrated the offense against you. I'll say that again. Unforgiveness will do more damage to you than to the person who perpetrated the offense against you. And so our last lesson this morning is what I've entitled, Playing God, the Law of Judgment. Playing God, the Law of Judgment. Let's read in Matthew chapter 7, and uh, these, are, these are great verses for us to end on in this whole series of unforgiveness. Jesus said this, he said, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. You probably ought to underline that. Of all the things you underline in your Bible, I understand you don't underline things like that. But you need to get this. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And we're talking this morning on what I've entitled Playing God. Playing God. Who amongst us would presume to play God? Even, I think, the most ignorant of people generally know that they ain't God. You know, I've, I've watched people before, and I've even used the phrase to folks. I've said, you know, God didn't die and put you in charge. Th there's something inside of all of us, though, that intuitively knows that we are not God. Now, there have been interesting movies that have come out through the years that have used sort of an anthropomorphic way of trying to help us understand who God is, in fact, just recently, uh, there was a movie called Evan Almighty. I don't know if you saw, he was actually the Noah character. Now, there was one with Jim Carrey called Bruce Almighty that just stunk. Yeah, don't, even go, don't even go there. By the way, if you ever wonder whether you ought to go to a movie and see it or not, just go to plug, pluggedinonline.org, and it'll give you a review from a Christian worldview perspective. And uh, you ought to use that, because there are a lot of movies out there that you could skip. But anyway, Evan Almighty was this guy that becomes a modern-day Noah, and he interacts with uh, a gentleman who is portraying God. And it's kind of funny, and you know, years ago, some of you will remember this. Remember when George Burns played God? You know, with John Denver? I think the movie was Oh God, uh, if I remember it correctly. And sometimes that's comedic, and it's funny, and I suppose sometimes it's blasphemous, and, and, and probably there are lines there. But, but we all know intuitively that a human being playing God even as comedic and funny as it might be in a movie, it's impossible. Because none of us here are him. However, I'm going to say this, and I really do mean it when I say it, more people play God than we might initially think. One of the ways we try to play God is by falling into the trap of judgment. 
judgment. Now, when unforgiveness and bitterness is allowed to exist in our lives, almost without fail, it will lead you to judgment. Think about your own bitterness. Think about other people that you know that have, that have functioned in bitterness. And just for a moment, uh, uh, just consider the life and consider the fruit of their life. And you'll begin to see quickly that whenever that's allowed to exist, it will lead you to judgment. Most specifically, it usually leads you to judgment of those who have wronged you. Is that not right? I mean, they wronged me. You're doggone right I'm putting out a judgment. They did something wrong. It's not right. It's unfair. It's unjust. I sure enough know exactly what's going on. And so, so we do that almost without, without thinking. But truth of the matter is that if you allow it to exist, it won't only exist with those who have offended you, but you become judgmental in far broader ways than just that now i want to define because this is the part that we don't understand what does it mean to judge what does it mean to judge after all am i not allowed some form of evaluation of what is going on around me am i I not allowed to weigh certain things and observe certain things of of impact that's going on around me do i not get to consider of what's going on and who's doing it and how it affects my life and the benefits or the repercussions of all that's taking place. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says that I'm to know people by their fruits. So how do I know people by their fruits unless I have the ability to make some sort of evaluation or to make some sort of judgment upon those fruits? The Bible tells me that I'm supposed to discern things, to test the spirits. So obviously... I'm allowed some form of evaluation that takes place. So, so how do I guard? How do I guard my life? How do I guard my family? How do I guard the ministry without some form of judgment? You know, years ago, some of you will identify very quickly with this. Years ago, I was visiting with a family member, and we were talking about the claims of the gospel. And you know, the hardest, hardest person to present the gospel to is someone who's got a little religion. It really is. You get someone with just enough religion in them and they can dodge you pretty good. And so you've you got to convince a person with religion that they're a sinner first before you can get them to the grace of God that can bring them to salvation. That's just the way it works. Because most people are religious enough that they'll declare themselves to be good. You ask, you ask people, are you a good person? Just go take your own little survey and you'll find out that the vast majority of people will go yes. Anybody that's ever watched, what's his name, Ray Comfort, and ask people if they feel like they're a good person. And they'll instantly go, oh yeah, I'm a good person. And he goes, well, have you ever lied? Well, yeah. Well, that makes you a liar, right? And, and watch them get stunned. You say, have you ever cheated? Well, yeah. Well, that makes you a cheater, right? Have you ever stolen anything? I mean, even a pencil from work. And they'll go, well, well yeah, 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 everybody does that. Well, that makes you a thief, doesn't it? And you just watch them. They get stunned because they're shook out of their good for just a moment. And you got to shake people out of their good for just a moment to get them to the gospel. Because there's not one good. The Bible says there's not one good. No, not one. Not one of us are good. In fact, none of us, none of us even can be righteous until the one who epitomized righteousness comes in our life. So I was sharing with a family member, and they had just enough religion to dodge me. And after a while of sharing the gospel, and, and you bring them 
to the realization that they are lawbreakers, just like all of us have been lawbreakers. And what comes out of the mouth but the famous saying, you know, people don't know many verses of Scripture, but they always know this one. You're judging me. And I know what the Bible says about judging. And, you know, and they think that just should shut you off. It's the only verse they know in the Bible, aside from the one that, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. They, you know, they know that one, too. Have you ever had that, you've been, you've been just sharing with somebody and they cut you off with that phrase? You're judging me. Well, you see, I was, young, I was just young in the Lord at that time and I just was smart alecky. I just, you know. And I looked at him and said, I'm not judging you. The Bible says that we're to judge a man by his fruits. And I'm just being a fruit inspector and I can see a rotten apple. That didn't help the relationship any. I just want you to know that relationally was not a good thing to do at that particular moment. But you've, you've been there, heard that, maybe even done that yourself. You're judging me, and I know what the Bible says about judging. So, so what is judging? I mean, it'd be important that we understand, because just because somebody crowds you with regards to your integrity doesn't necessarily mean you're getting judged. Just because someone may point out to you that there are character defects doesn't necessarily mean you're getting judged. We need to understand what judging really is. Does it mean that I have to keep all my opinions to myself? It's interesting how the enemy has confused this area, and the reason he confuses it is because it just keeps us messed up. And it's keeping us messed up with regards to getting whole. The word judge in the original Greek, krima, is the word in the Greek. I put it on the screen overhead. It literally means, the word literally means to avenge, to condemn, or to legally, and this is key, to legally pass sentence upon. To legally pass sentence upon. It is more than just, hear me now, it's more than just assessing a behavior. It is assessing a person's personal value. It's a personal value judgment upon the person, not just the actions. So it carries the idea of being critical of the person and not just the behavior. Are you with me? You're being critical of the person and not just the behavior. And this is the fine line. The Bible says clearly that you can evaluate behavior, but the judgment of people is reserved for God alone. That's why it really is true when you hear this said, we can hate the sin, but what? Love the sinner. It is absolutely true. You can hate a behavior, but you can love a person. The problem is we think loving a person means accepting the behavior, and that's not right. You can hate what's going on. You can, you can totally disavow and make all sorts of evaluations about behavior. That's wrong. But God loves people. He loved us when we were so screwed up, he sent his son to die for us. That's how much he loves us. Despite the fact he disavows himself from the behavior. Are you with me? He loves people. He just has a tough time at times with our behavior. The problem is, in this area, it can be very motive-driven. Sometimes it's a very slick, obscure line that we can walk on. It can be a very internal state of expression that is not easily analyzed because there are certain things we do, whether it's in our families or whether it's in our associations and friendships. There are certain times that we, we should be able to communicate a concern about a particular behavior 
But at the same time, how do you do that without devaluing a person? And when you step across a certain line and begin to judge people and not actions, you begin to play God because God reserved for himself and himself alone the ability to declare value upon a person. Are you with me? You need to be. Now in Luke chapter 6, verse 37, Luke 6, 37, I want to read to you just some passages here. Again, Jesus says these words, judge not. And you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, that's somewhat similar to what I just read to you out of Matthew chapter 7. But we never connect 37 and 38. We need to connect these two verses just for a minute. We usually preach verse 38 all by itself. But 38 follows 37, right? So there may be a little context there says, give, verse 38, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom or into your basket. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, those of you that have hung around church long enough, you automatically know that that's been preached with regards to your finances and giving. And and we'll preach verse 38 and we'll all have a shout and spell that God's going to multiply back to us all that we have sown financially into the kingdom. Woo-hoo! Hallelujah. But you've got to understand what the Lord is saying there. He's saying if you judge and that's what you give, uh-oh, it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over have you ever thought about that i bet you never connected those verses before jesus says that whatever judgment you use by whatever measure you use it will be the same to you again watch the screen the word measure metron is is where we get that word from it means the same degree standard or rule So whatever your measuring stick is in life that you like to use with other people just get this That same measuring stick is going to be used with you as well. And get this, it may not be, because this is how we always do it. We always judge people on areas we've got good. Oh, we've got this area down. So we can begin to evaluate everyone else because we've got that area down. Sure, put the measuring stick up to me, I'll pass. The problem is, your measuring stick's going to get slapped on an area you don't got down. Are you with me? I got all kinds of bad English this morning, don't I? I guess. So while you're judging others, it will be God who judges you in the same measure. Have you ever thought about that? Wow. Romans chapter 2. Let me read this again. Romans 2. You can write these down. Get them later. Listen to what he says, though. Romans 2, 1. He says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So what that verse says is this. That when you decide you're going to slap the measuring stick up to someone else's life and say that's going to be the measuring stick and you judge according to that measuring stick, the Bible says this. God takes your measuring stick himself. And he now slaps that same measuring stick up to you. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want God to be judging any more than he has to with me. But that, friends, is a law. Everyone say law. That's a law of God. When God created the universe, let me just share this real quick. I'm going to go on a little side road here. When God created the universe, the Bible says that he created the heavens and the earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about why the Bible says he created the heavens and the earth. Why is it that he says two things there? Why didn't he just say, he created the universe and everything in it? He said, I created the heavens and the earth. The reason I believe the Bible says that is because the Lord created law within the natural, physical universe and within the spiritual dimension. The heavens and the earth. He created laws by which both are governed. There are natural laws and there are spiritual laws. And they are both equally valid when it comes to the application in our life. Now, all of us here easily would accept natural laws. They're widely known. They're easily accepted. You know, the most notable one is gravity. If I jump off this platform, what's going to happen? I'm going to fall to the next place here. Hopefully not fall. I'll hopefully jump and land on my own two feet. But gravity works. Amen. So if I go to the tallest building in Charleston or the top of the, the Cooper River Bridge and I jump off that thing, and the whole time I jump off that thing, I say, hey, I don't believe gravity exists. I don't believe that I'm subject to gravity. I don't believe that it works. I don't believe that it affects me. I don't believe what my science teacher said about gravity. How many of you know I can be going all the way down saying, I don't believe gravity, and I'm going to hit that water hard. Is that not true? I'm going to tell you all something, and you just might as well gulp and receive it and thank God for it. Spiritual law works the same way. People break law all the time. And then they don't understand why life isn't working. Because we've been taught wrongly on grace, by the way. I believe in grace. I believe the grace of God is, is massive and incredible and empowering. And I don't have time to teach on the, on the grace of God and how great it is. But the problem is God has put law into existence even within spiritual things. That we just can't, we just can't go out and violate law left and right and think there's no repercussion. We, 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 we walk around saying, I'm under grace, I'm under grace, I'm under grace. That's like standing on top of the bridge, jumping off, going, I'm under grace. Gravity isn't going to affect me. And you hit the water pretty hard. And that's what folks do all the time. We violate precept that God put within the spiritual realm as well. And whether you believe it or not, I don't care. You don't have to contend with me. I have people that will come up from time to time, not much anymore, but from time to time through the years, they would come up to me and want to debate a precept. And finally I look at them and say, just go do it your way. Or I'll look at them and say, how's it been working? Because there are folks that are dysfunctional and they're wrecked. And the whole time, they, they hold their, you know, I would start to question my doctrine if it ain't getting you where you need to be. Because God's called you to some level of functionality and abundancy and success. I'm not saying you have to be just a billionaire, but there ought to be some sense of stability. But we can't, we can't violate precept and think somehow God's just going to wink at it. So this is law. This is the law of judgment. The law of judgment. And we can't get away from it, so we better understand it. Now, the law of judgment is attached to the law of what we call sowing and reaping. The law of judgment is attached to the law of sowing and reaping. It is the greatest spiritual law, I believe, this is my opinion, 
I believe the greatest spiritual law that ever gets violated is the law of sowing and reaping. We violate this constantly. In the book of Galatians chapter 6, just listen to this real quickly. Galatians chapter 6, I'll get back to judging here in just a second. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Then it says in verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So, so let me just make sure everybody understands this. Sowing, sowing in the Bible means this. Sowing is what you release from your life. If you release words, the words you say are sowing things. The actions you do are sowing things. So sowing is word and action. And and as you release that from your life, you are sowing things into the atmosphere and into the earth. Reaping, what the Bible means by reaping is, is that there is the, the repercussion. Or in other words, whatever was sowed, there is the same repercussion. You begin to reap that back upon your life from whatever it is you release. Now, there are four things I'm going to share with you, and you need to write these down and never forget them because these are laws. If you can get this one down, it will get you a ways down the road. I can get you a ways down the road this morning. There are four things, quick things, keys in sowing and reaping. Number one, it's this. Whatever, everyone say whatever. Whatever you sow, good or bad, it'll come back. The good news is this, if you are a giver with regards to your finances and and benevolence and you release money and you sow money and that's a part of who you are and what you like to do, I got good news for you. God says, I'm going to let that come back to you. You're going to reap that back in your life. If you love sowing kindness and benevolence and encouragement and love and all these wonderful attributes, isn't that good news that whatever you sow, that will you also reap? So if you release that as seed, all that will come back to you. Isn't that good? Say amen. But let me give you now the other side of the coin. If you release criticism and gossip and just the spirit of nasty or meanness or judgmentalism, whatever you sow, are you with me? Good or bad, the Bible says it comes back. That's the first key. Number two, whatever you sow is multiplied back to you. Everybody say multiply. Now, isn't that good news to know that if I give a dollar and I'm sowing it, that God will multiply back to me in my finances? Isn't that a good? That's that's cool. And if I if I sow if I sow kindness then God will multiply back to me kindness. I mean, isn't that neat to think that that there's a 30, 60, 100-fold return on whatever it is that we sow? Isn't that cool? But understand me, the harvest is always greater than the seed you planted, and there are some things that you do not want a 100-fold return on. I mean, you don't want it. But you got to realize that when it's seed... It multiplies because there is no seed that goes into the ground that comes up as one seed. It just doesn't work that way. It multiplies back to you. Number three, I'm just sharing these things that 
I'm learning. Harvest has its own timing. You know, different seeds have different germination periods. Some things grow slow. Other things grow fast. Some seed can lie dormant for some time before blossoming. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You see, this is what we've got to understand. This is the funniest, the funniest one. It's, it's humorous. I say it's humorous because we've all experienced it. But, but, but how many of you have, have said to your children already, just wait till you have kids? I mean, I mean, any parent that, you know, has said that sometime to children when they're challenging you on something that you're doing in their life. You know what's interesting? It's interesting that as young people, I hope young people get a hold of this, that as you're sowing in your teenage years and as you're sowing in your, your youthful years, you don't get totally that a lot of the seed that you're sowing right now is lying dormant until you're about 40 years old and your teenager comes along and God, who's the one that brings the seed back, decides good time for harvest are you hearing me see that's why we sow in our youth all these things and and then all of a sudden it all seems to come back to us because there will be a harvest it can lie dormant for some time and 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 so we, we need to get a hold of that there are things this is what you need to remember Right now, there are people who will sow negative things. They'll sow criticism, and they'll sow their nasty, and they'll sow their judgment, and they'll, they'll live their life that way, and you'll, you'll even look at their life and say, Lord, when, when will they get it? Will they ever get it? And you just need to remember that some of that seed's just lying dormant in there. Because there'll come a day that it will come out. Because the harvest has its own timing. I wish, for the sake of learning lessons, that once you planted a seed, that you would get it the next day. Because there would be, there, it would be like Pavlov's dog. You see, all of a sudden you would get, oh, I did this on Thursday, and I got this repercussion on Friday. I get it. But most people don't get it because God doesn't do it that way. That's why so many folks can't connect dots. They don't understand why their life's gone wrong. It's because you spent decades and decades and decades sowing cruddy stuff. Now, I'm going to talk to you in just a minute about can that be circumvented or cut off. The good news is some of that can. That's good news. But the thing I'm trying to get you to is you can't keep sowing bad stuff and think suddenly it's just going to stop for no reason. Number four, good seed cannot offset bad seed. Luke 6, 34. Excuse me, 43. Luke 6, 43. Listen to this, what Jesus says here. He says, for a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. All right, so you can plant, and this is just from my farm days. This is kind of farming 101. I can plant corn in a field. I can sow corn. And I can sow corn 10 to 1 over sunflowers. Now, I understand in, in South Carolina, do you know they sell sunflowers? At, I, I'm, I look at, I, I've cut down more sunflowers in fields in western Kansas than I can count. And then I come to South Carolina and they're selling them. There's something wrong with that. I guess it's one state's weed is another state's 
Yeah, I guess flower. I, I guess so. I, anyway, so, so you may think a sunflower is really cool. I'm telling you where I'm from, a sunflower was frustrating. It was a weed where I'm from. And you can plant corn 10 to 1 over your sunflowers. But you're still going to get sunflowers in your field. Just because you sow good seed 10 to 1 over your bad seed, the bad seed still germinates and it still grows. Are we getting this? So, so if you're saying, well, well I'm, I'm kind 29 out of the 30 days of the month. Hooray! But it's that one day's worth of seed that's killing you. Are you with me? So I just want to remind you, these are, these are laws. You can disbelieve them. You can walk out and you can ignore me and disbelieve them all you want to if that's what you want to do. But I'm just, you're still subject to them. So how do I stop this? How do, how, do I, how, do I, how do I begin to stop this? This whole concept of judgment. Now remember, we're talking about bitterness and unforgiveness. How that's working in my system in order for me, the enemy uses it for me to produce a judgment. Because if he can get me out of my bitterness to produce a judgment, and out of that judgment plant a seed, and from that seed multiply it back to me, are you getting why he loves to do that in your life? With me. All right. How do we stop that? How do we get this fixed in our life? Obviously, we all have judgments out there. Hey, let's just admit, everybody just lift your hand and say, I've I've judged before. Just raise your hand. Come on, don't you lie. You know where liars go. We all have judgments. We've all judged. Judgment, listen to me, it has to be recognized. You've got to recognize judgment. Reason I had you raise your hand is because I'm going to make you recognize it. You've got to recognize you've judged. Secondly, you've got to renounce those judgments. As the Holy Spirit begins to bring those judgments to mind, just as you spoke them out loud, you must speak a renouncement out loud. You just can't think renounce. You've got to speak renounce. I renounce those judgments. Judgments I made upon my parents. Judgments I made upon my children. Judgments I made upon authorities. Judgments I made upon friends. Judgments. I mean, they're judgments, and you've got to renounce those things. The Holy Spirit will help you. You say, well, my list is pretty long. Well, just... Say it. You had time for the judgment, have time for the renouncement. And then thirdly, you repent from it, which means I don't want that anymore. I, I'm, I'm turning, I'm changing my mind about that, and I'm turning away from that. Now, here's the merciful news. Everybody, you can get a smile back on your face now. This is the merciful news that the Lord, according to the scripture, the Bible tells me that God does not always deal with me according to my sins. Isn't that good news? It's like... Thank you, Jesus, that the Lord does not always deal with me according to my sins, that he can look with compassion on my life and he can see the sincerity and the genuineness of my heart. He can begin to see what's going on. And you know what the interesting thing is? He's the one person who's qualified to cut through whatever it is that's coming out of your mouth and look straight into your heart. And he knows your heart better than you know it. And so he knows for sure whether or not what you're saying is legitimate and true or not. And there are times, praise God, in his wisdom and in his mercy, he has given us a break. And he does give us a break. And he determines he's going to weed the garden and pull up the weeds and not allow us to experience the full repercussion of our stupidity. Isn't that good news? Praise God that even though I'm stupid, he's smart. 
Even though I do dumb things, he spares me from it. Thank you, Lord. I really appreciate it because I'd be experiencing a whole lot worse than I am right now if it weren't for that. But here's the deal. If we are hard-hearted and if we refuse to come to the knowledge of the truth and if we just are lackadaisical in it and if we're lethargic and apathetic and if, if we really don't want to pursue this in a way to walk in wholeness and, and if we stiff-arm God and if we want to keep those offenses and those bitternesses and if we irritate him and if he becomes angry, the scripture says that there are moments he will let the repercussion run its course. Now, I can, I can go through the Bible cover to cover and show you saints who have experienced the repercussion of, of their sin. It's not God. God's not, listen to me, God's not up in the air going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personally hammer them. This is what God's doing. I'm just going to let that seed run its course. God didn't put it in the ground. God isn't making it germinate. God isn't making it blossom. God's, God just put a law into the fabric of the spirit realm. And, and we do this, and he just simply says, well, we'll just let it run its course. And he doesn't choose to intervene. And we've got to understand that, the, the, and this is, this is the other thing I, I, just, I just saw in the Bible, that the longer God waits, the longer God waits, it's usually a sign of the more irritated he is. When you were a child, you remember when you were in trouble and how you just wanted to get your whooping over quick. Or if mom looked at you and it was in the morning and she said, when dad gets home, when dad gets home, man, he's going to tan your hide. And all day long, you'd be going, oh my God. It's 9.30 in the morning. i got to live all day until he comes home at 5.30. I, I, I mean, it would have been better for dad to have come home for lunch that day. Just for it to have been over with. But to have, 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 have gone all day. And you know, there are times, I think, what we feel like, if, if there's enough time that goes on, sometimes we hope they forget. Maybe mom will forget to tell him. Maybe... Maybe I'll get out of this one. That usually wasn't the case for me. So. So, so the optimum place to be is never in the position of being the judge. That's the optimum place to be. So what can you do to avoid it? Well, I read to you out of Matthew, and I'm going to use those last few verses in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 3 through 5, and, and let's go through this quickly. What can you do to avoid this? Obviously, if you've got judgments out there, you recognize it, you renounce it, and you repent from it, and the mercy of God will believe that the mercy of God will keep you from getting your harvest. That's your choice in that area. But what can you do to avoid getting into this predicament to begin with? Number one, Jesus said that we had to face our own faults first. Face your own faults first. He said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't consider the plank in your own eye? Now, it's interesting because the Lord links our ability to do this to the definition of hypocrisy. He says, if you cannot righteously and with some sense of reality evaluate yourself first, you are probably bordering on hypocrisy. Are you, are you hearing this? He says, if you can't see what's going on in your own life, but you have no problem picking out what's going on in other people's lives, then you're, you're moving into the hypocrisy room. I was in a meeting years ago, and a person at this meeting, I'm just going to tell you a story 
that, that because I know it has to be, you know, pertinent, practical. Tracy's always telling me, he's saying, be practical, Kevin. Make sure you're, you're, you're helping them connect the dots and being practical. So I'm going to try to do this right now. I was in a meeting years ago, and a person at this meeting I was at brought up the fact that they had seen a prominent person within the congregation, a woman who had, God forbid, multiple earring holes in her ear. Oh my God. Bring her before the church. And I listened. I I mean, I'm not talking it was just like a 60-second off-the-cuff remark. I'm talking about this was a significant issue. What will that say to our young people? Tell me. I don't know. And they went on and on and on. And I'm just sitting there and it's just, it's, I'm just, I'm going, I can't. you know, this is what's really hard sometimes is that there's, there's so many important things in the kingdom to be doing and to waste 30 minutes on holes in ears. Golly, it just was hard. But you know what was harder than that? What was harder than that was that I knew for myself, that they had more issues in their closet that they could count. In fact, I wanted to make the suggestion, if they would give up everything that was an issue in their life, they ought to go get some holes in their ear. I mean, I mean we're talking about people that had spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, I'll just say it, on plastic surgery, tucked, lipoed, augmented, sculpt, but you're worried about three holes in an ear. When I know for a fact there are probably three new belly buttons in the center of your person. Doesn't that sound stupid? But for some reason that person decided they were the spec share. That somebody had bestowed, I guess God had given them the badge that said spec share. And they decided they were the ones that were going to walk around and figure out where all the specs were. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, I don't know that I'd be just, I don't know that I'd be doing handstands and my daughter wanted, you know, five holes in her ear. I don't know that it would thrill me all that much. And I deal with that as a parent. But truth of the matter is, before you deal with holes and ears, make sure you're dealing with your own faults first. First. It says, don't pull out specs when you've got this board sticking out of your eye. Then secondly, it goes right along with it. Number two is, fix your own fault first. Jesus, fix your own faults first. Jesus says, remove yours, then you can work on theirs. In fact, the context, I mean, is this not the context of the passage is your plank is way more significant than their speck that you feel a need to address. I mean, here's a speck, here's a board. Speck, board. Little thing, big thing. 
Are you, are you with me? So are you beginning to understand that the plank probably is way more significant in your life than the speck that's in their life? This is the funny thing. We all feel like we got specks and everyone else got planks. There's a place, don't misunderstand me, there is absolutely a place of accountability with other brothers and sisters. Don't misunderstand this. Jesus never says that you can't mention to a person their speck. He doesn't say you can't do that. He simply says, make sure you take the plank out first. Then you can address the speck. In fact, I have maintained that perhaps if we got our own planks out of our own eyes first, then maybe everything would look different to us once that got out. Maybe it wouldn't be a speck. Maybe the speck you're seeing is a splinter in your own plank. Have you ever thought about that? I'm just full of wisdom this morning. Number three, how do I avoid this stuff? Figure out, number three, if you are a fault finder. Some people believe they have the ministry of spec inspector. Spec inspector. It is fascinating, I just wrote this down, that through the years that I will have people give me a buzz, call me, share things with me. I, you know, I have a burden on my heart, Pastor. I, you know, a prayer request or however they want to do this. But they will do it 50 to 1. 50 to 1, people will contact me and they will say, did you know, Pastor, so-and-so was doing... Well, no, not till now. 50 to 1, that will happen. Rarely will someone call me on the phone and say, Pastor, I've got this problem. Are you with me? That no one, no one says, you know what, I've got an issue. Pastor, I've got this issue. It's always, they've got an issue. I, no, how about, you've got an issue. Did you know, see, it's always, it's always, Pastor, did you know they were? Pastor, did you know they were? Pastor, did you know they were? I'm waiting for the day someone calls me up and says, Pastor, did you know what I was doing last night? I'm waiting for that moment. Because... This is a burden on my heart, and I just feel like for the best interest of the body, you just need to know what I was doing last night. <laughs> After I got up off the floor from fainting, okay, tell me. <laughs> All right. Judging, listen, judging is easy. You don't need training on how to point a finger. I mean, we don't have a class pointing finger 101. I mean, we don't have that. No one needs a class. Isn't that interesting? Nobody needs a class on criticism. Doesn't take a high IQ, doesn't even take much experience to judge. I mean, it doesn't matter how smart or how dumb or what position in life you hold. I mean, everybody comes into life with the ability naturally to be somebody else's judge. And can I just share this too? Your ability to judge isn't necessarily a sign of spirituality. It may be a sign of your religion. It may be a sign of your tradition. It may be a sign of even your immaturity. So ask yourself the question, why is it more important to critique them than look at me? I know what some will say, I need to do it for God's honor. God's honor is at stake. I mean, need to be sure there's no reproach in the house of God. Okay? Okay? That may be. But just remember, 
Many people have used that justification and never look inside. But God who knows the heart knows differently. And suddenly you who are touting upholding God's honor are not realizing you are sowing seed that will multiply back. And then lastly, number four, is we've got to hold fast to a fear of God. We need a fear of God in America today. Matthew 12, 36, it says this. Listen to this. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. The Lord says that there's going to come a day that we're going to be held accountable for what comes out of our mouths. I'm going to duck right now. God, help me. We need to have a greater fear of God. I want you just to consider this, and then I'm closing. Number one, God is listening to everything we say. Sure it is. Words are the spiritual conduit that help us as natural beings access the spiritual realm. God's listening. He really wants to hear us accessing good things. He's listening to all we say. Number two, he knows the truth about you better than even you know the truth about you. He really understands you. You may think he doesn't, but he gets it. And number three, he is ruthlessly fair. I put that word ruthless in there because I knew that'd get your attention. Ruthlessly fair. This is it, and I'm done. Second Samuel. Turn your Bible, Second Samuel chapter 12, and I'm coming in for a landing. Second Samuel chapter 12, and we're all done. How many of you remember the story of David's fall? Remember David fell when it was a season that kings should have been out at battle. He stayed home, and he's up on his roof, and he's looking at Bathsheba over the, over the roof line, and he sees her taking a bath. You know, the Bible doesn't say a lot, doesn't give us a lot of detail, but you get it, what's going on. Calls Bathsheba over. They have an illicit affair. He enters into this adulterous relationship. She conceives a baby from this tryst, and all of a sudden he's in a little hot water, and so uh, somehow or another he's got to make this right in order to stand, I guess he thought, upright before the people, and somehow thought maybe God wouldn't know. So he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, but Uriah's a righteous, godly man. He was hoping that Uriah would go and be with his wife and sleep with his wife, and then they could all just simply say, well, praise God, the Uriah household had another child, and it's Uriah's baby. But Uriah, being a righteous man, wasn't going to do that while his buddies were out fighting on the battlefield, so he slept in the doorway. So David knew something had to happen, and so he, he manipulated the war plan, sent Uriah to the front of the battle, and Uriah was killed, and it made Bathsheba, a widow, that he eventually married. And then, lo and behold... A child comes, child comes into the equation, and, and maybe, maybe it fooled a lot of people, but how many of you know it didn't fool God? And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Listen to what it says. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know where the story's going. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And the traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flocks and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. 
So David's anger was greatly aroused against this man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the land because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. I want you to understand that in the Old Testament, when the prophets would come, they were the, they were the mouthpiece of God. They were the, they were the scriptures. The prophets came and they, they spoke clearly and without challenge the word and the will of God. So understand, as, as Nathan comes into this situation, Nathan is representing God in this particular situation. And, and he tells this parable to David. And, and David hears this parable and with no thought of what he has done, no ability to connect the dots, no conception in any way, shape, or form that this parable that's coming at him is actually a parable that's much like what he himself has done. David, without a thought, suddenly jumps into the parable and he says, I'll tell you what we need to do. This is the judgment that needs to take place. And David either was just so audacious to judge this man in the parable or enough time had gone by that he just became blind to it or he forgot it. But God is not blind nor forgetful. And as he declares the judgment upon the man in the parable, Nathan, with the voice of the Lord, goes right back at him and says, you're it. You're it. And all of a sudden, David is exposed through all of Israel and through all of his kingdom. It's remarkable to me how an adulterer and a murderer can be so mad and judgmental about a guy who mishandles sheep. And yet, is that not the truth? I have watched for years people who will sit around and pick and pick and pick, and if you only knew what happened and does happen in their household. And I want to say, who are you to pick on that speck when that is your plank? I'm telling you, folks, this has to be broken. It's the last thing we're going to say about forgiveness. This needs to be broken, and it needs to be renounced, and it needs to be walked away from, and we need to get to the place where we hear Jesus' words ring in our ears again. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Does anyone here really not need any mercy in their life? I mean, would anybody be so arrogant and say, I'm going to go the rest of my life, and God, you don't have to pour out any more mercy on me. I got as much as I need. I got it all together. I just, I just don't want to be near you, especially if there's a cloud forming. Lightning. I get that there's a place for discipline. I understand that. I understand as a pastor there's a place that I watch over the body. I understand all of those things. I understand that there has to be correction and there has to be at times confrontation. But when it comes to forgiveness, we need to evaluate ourselves right before we evaluate anyone else. Before you step up to the plate and say, I can, I can evaluate them, you better first have stepped up to the mirror and said, I better evaluate this person. Forgiveness. The biggest thing, I'm going to say it one more time, the biggest thing about forgiveness is not you're letting someone else off the hook. The biggest thing is that you're getting yourself back in a position where God can bless you and he can help you and he can work with you. Would you stand with me, please? Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for your word in these last weeks that is helping us become a people set free and at liberty.
from all of the spiritual junk and repercussions and areas, wounds, hurts, vows, judgments, Lord, that have ensnared us and, and to be candid for some are destroying us. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would come in this place. Come in this place. Come in this place. And Lord, talk to us so that we can begin to renounce and repent all that stupid stuff that's popped out of our mouth through the years so that we can begin to function, Lord, with a clean slate. Lord, would your mercy pour out upon us today? Would your mercy pour out upon us today? We need mercy, Lord. I need mercy. Anyone else need mercy in here? Would anyone want, I mean, just right where you're standing right now. I mean, just, just to say, Lord, mercy. I personally, Lord, need mercy. I understand you, you can hammer me and you'd be just. Forgive me for my blindness. Forgive me for my ignorance. Forgive me for my willfulness. Lord, forgive me for shoving you off the throne and stepping up there and somehow saying, I I I'll judge this one for you, Lord. Lord, I'm just interceding for everyone that's gathered here. I don't want to play God. Lord, I ask you right now to cause us to be cognizant of the power of our words. Help us, Lord, to be attuned to what it is that's coming out of our hearts and our mouths. Lord, help us to walk this Christian life well. Lord, help us to break out of the mentality that we can live at the lowest common denominator help us lord to break out of the mentality that we can look at other people and say well they get away with it and they get to do this and they get to do that lord the measuring stick isn't anywhere close to that the measuring stick is your word and 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 what you're putting upon our hearts and lord we want to aspire to that and lord we're going to need your grace your empowering your empowering grace lord it's not just a grace that excuses us or winks at us, but we need, we need something beyond ourselves to, to quicken us and enliven us and to help us. So that, Lord, we're not always learning the same lessons over and over and over again. Hallelujah. One more time, just as we're standing here. I want you just to renounce say say with me just say in the name of Jesus I recognize judgments that have come out of my mouth I renounce them in the name of Jesus I don't know what I was thinking and I choose today to turn to repent, to step up into another dimension of living. And Lord, renew my mind. Change me, transform me, that I might not be ensnared by the words of my mouth. Help me 
spend more time in the mirror than looking at other people. I got plenty that I need to work on. Help me see it. Their speck is not as important as my plank. I recognize that. In Jesus' name.